Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sword of Honor by Evelyn War. Chapter 3. Apthorpe Furibundus. Orders were to report back at Kut Alemara for 1800 hours on the 15th of February. Guy travelled through the familiar drab landscape. The frost was over and the countryside sodden and dripping. He drove through the darkling streets of South Sand where blinds were going down in the lightless windows. This was no homecoming. He was a stray cat slinking back mauled from the rooftops to a dark corner among the dustbins where he could lick his wounds. South Sand was a place of solace. Hotel and yacht club would shelter him, he thought. Giuseppe Pelecci would feed him and flatter him. Mr Goodall raise him. Mist from the sea and the melting snow would hide him. The spell of Apthorpe would bind him and gently bear him away to the far gardens of fantasy. In his melancholy, Guy had taken no account of the Ritchie Hook seven-day plan. Later, in his military experience, when Guy had caught sight of that vast, uniformed and bemedaled bureaucracy by whose power alone a man might stick his bayonet into another, and had felt something of its measureless obstructive strength, Guy came to appreciate the scope and speed of the Brigadier's achievement. Now, he innocently supposed that someone of the Brigadier's eminence merely said what he wanted, gave his orders, and the thing was done, but even so he marvelled, for in seven days Kut Alimara had been transformed, body and soul. Gone were Major McKinney and the former directing staff and the civilian caterers. Gone too was Trimmer. A notice on the board headed Strength, Decrease of, stated that his temporary commission had been terminated. With him went two other delinquents and a young man from the depot whose name was unfamiliar to Guy, for the sufficient reason that he had been absent without leave for the whole of the course at South Sand. In their stead were a group of regular officers, Major Tickeridge among them. They sat at the back of the mess behind the brigadier when at six o'clock on the first evening he rose to introduce them. He held his audience for a moment with his single eye. Then he said, Gentlemen, these are the officers who will command you in battle. At those words Guy's shame left him and pride flowed back. He ceased for the time being to be the lonely and ineffective man, the man he so often thought he saw in himself, past his first youth, cuckold, wastrel, prig, He was one with his regiment, with all the historic feats of arms behind him, with great opportunities to come. He felt, from head to foot, a physical tingling and bristling, as though charged with a galvanic current. The rest of his speech was an explanation of the new organisation and regime. The brigade had already taken embryonic form. The temporary officers were divided into three battalion groups of a dozen each, under the regular major and captain, who would eventually become respectively their commanding officer and adjutant. All were to live in. Permission to sleep out would be given to married men for Saturday and Sunday nights only. All would dine in mess for at least four nights a week. That is all, gentlemen. We will meet again at dinner. 
When they left the mess, they found that the tabletop over the fireplace in the hall had been covered in their brief absence with typewritten sheets. Gradually, spelling his way through the official abbreviations, Guy learned that he was in the 2nd Battalion under Major Tickeridge and the Captain Saunders with whom Apthorpe had once so notably played golf. With him were Apthorpe, Sarum Smith, D'Souza, Leonard and seven others all from the barracks. He was back in Passchendaele, as was Apthorpe. Then and later he learned of other changes. The closed rooms of the house were now thrown open. One was labelled Brigade HQ and held a Brigade Major and two clerks. The headmaster's study housed three battalion orderly rooms. There were also a regular quartermaster with an office and a clerk, three regimental sergeant majors, halberdier cooks, new younger halberdier servants, three lorries, a humber snipe, three motor bicycles, drivers, a bugler. The day's routine was a continuous succession of parades, exercises and lectures from eight in the morning till six. Discussions would be held after dinner on Mondays and Fridays. Night operations also were two a week. I don't know how Daisy will take this, said Leonard. She took it, Guy learned later, very badly and returned heavy and cross to her parents. Most of the young officers were worried. Apthorpe, who had mentioned in the train that he was suffering from a touch of tummy, looked more worried than anyone. It's the question of my gear, he said. Why not leave it at your digs? At the Commodore's? Pretty awkward, old man, in the case of a sudden move. I think I'd better have a palaver with a QM about it. And later, do you know the QM wasn't a bit helpful? Said he was busy. Seemed to think I was talking about superfluous clothing. He even suggested I might have to scrap half of it when we move under canvas. He's just one of those box wallers. No experience of campaigning. I told him so, and he said he'd served in the ranks in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, I ask you, about the cushiest spot in the whole empire. I told him that too. Why is it all so important to you, Apthorpe? My dear fellow, it's taken me years to collect. Yes, but what's in it? That, old man, is not an easy question to answer in one word. Everyone dined in the mess that first evening. At half past ten, the brigadier said, Well, gentlemen, Bedfordshire for you. I've got work. You haven't got a training programme yet. He led his staff away into the room marked Brigade HQ. It was two o'clock when Guy heard them disperse. The training programme followed no textbook. Tactics, as interpreted by Brigadier Richie Hook, consisted of the art of biffing. Defence was studied cursorily and only as the period of reorganisation between two bloody assaults. The withdrawal was never mentioned. The attack and the element of surprise were all. Long, raw, misty days were passed in the surrounding country with maps and binoculars. Sometimes they stood on the beach and biffed imaginary defenders into the hills. Sometimes they biffed imaginary invaders from the hills into the sea. They invested downland hamlets and savagely biffed imaginary hostile inhabitants. Sometimes they merely collided with imaginary rivals for the use of the main road and biffed them out of the way. Guy found that he had an aptitude for this sort of warfare. He read his map easily and had a good eye for country. When townsmen like Sam Smith gazed blankly about them, Guy could always recognise dead ground and covered lines of approach. Sometimes they worked singly, sometimes in syndicates. Guy's answers usually turned out to be the staff solution. At night, when they were dropped about the downs, with compass bearings to guide them to a meeting place, Guy was usually one of the first home. There were great advantages in a rural upbringing. In the discussion, too, he did well. These were debates on the various, more recondite aspects of biffing. The subjects were announced beforehand, with the implication that the matters should be given thought and research. When the evening came, most were drowsy, and Apthorpe's fine show of technical vocabulary fell flat. 
Guy spoke up clearly and concisely. He realised that he was once more attracting favourable notice. The thaw gave place to clear cold weather. They returned to Mudshore Range, but with the brigadier in charge. This was a period before the invention of battle schools. The firing of a live round, as Guy well knew, was attended with all the solemnity of a salute at a funeral, always and everywhere, except when Brigadier Richie Hook was about. The sound of flying bullets exhilarated him to heights of levity. He went to the butts to organise snap shooting. Markers raised figure targets at unpredictable points during bursts of Bren fire. The brigadier soon tired of this, put his hat on a stick and ran up and down the trench, raising, lowering, waving it, promising down the telephone a sovereign to the man who hit it. All missed. Enraged, he popped his head above the parapet, shouting, Come on, you young blighters, shoot me! He did this for some time, running, laughing, ducking, jumping, until he was exhausted, though unwounded. It was a period when ammunition was short. Five rounds a man was the normal training allowance. Brigadier Richie Hook had all the Brens firing at once, continuously, their barrels overheated, changed, plunged sizzling into buckets of water, while he led his young officers on all fours in front of the targets, a few inches below the rain of bullets. 2. The newspapers, hastily scanned, were full of Finnish triumphs. Ghostly ski troops, Guy read, swept through the sunless Arctic forests, harassing the mechanised divisions of the Soviet, who had advanced with mass bands and portraits of Stalin, expecting a welcome, ill-equipped, underfed, quite ignorant of whom they were fighting and why. English forces, delayed only by a few diplomatic complications, were on their way to help. Russian might have proved to be an illusion. Mannerheim held the place in English hearts, won in 1914 by King Albert of the Belgians. Then, quite suddenly, it appeared that the Finns were beaten. No one at Kut Alimara House seemed much put out by the disaster. For Guy, the news quickened the sickening suspicion he had tried to ignore, had succeeded in ignoring, more often than not in his service in the Halberdiers, that he was engaged in a war in which courage and a just cause were quite irrelevant to the issue. Apthorpe said, I've other things to worry about. And Guy at once knew that there must have been a new development in the tense personal drama which all that lent was being played against the background of the brigadier's training methods, which, indeed, drew all its poignancy from them and itself formed their culminating illustration. The adventure had begun on the first Sunday of the new regime. The schoolrooms were almost deserted that afternoon. Everyone was either upstairs asleep or else in the town. Guy was reading his weekly papers in the hall when he saw through the plate-glass window a taxi drive up and Apthorpe emerge carrying, with the help of the driver, a large square object, which they placed in the porch. Guy went out to offer his help. That's all right, thank you, said Apthorpe rather stiffly. I'm just shifting some of my gear. Where do you want to put it? I don't quite know yet. I shall manage quite well. Thank you. Guy returned to the hall and stood in the window, gazing idly out. It was getting too dark to read comfortably, and the man had not yet appeared to put up the blackout screens. Presently, he saw Apthorpe emerge from the front door into the twilight and begin furtively burrowing about in the shrubbery. He watched, fascinated, until some ten minutes later he saw him return. The front porch opened directly into the hall. Apthorpe entered backwards, dragging his piece of gear. Are you sure I can't help? Quite sure, thank you. There was a large cupboard under the stairs. Into this, Apthorpe with difficulty shoved his burden. He removed his gloves and coat and cap and came with an air of unconcern to the fire, saying, The Commodore sent you his compliments. Says he misses us at the club. Have you been there? Not exactly. I just dropped in on the old man to fetch something. 
That piece of gear? Well, yes, as a matter of fact. Is it something very private, Apthorpe? Something of no general interest, old man. None at all. At that moment, the duty servant came in to fix the blackout. Apthorpe said, Smethers. Sir, your name is Smethers, isn't it? No, sir. Croc. Well, never mind. What I want to ask you is about the offices, the back parts of the house. Sir? I need some sort of little shed or storehouse. A gardener's hut would do, a washhouse, dairy, anything of that kind. Is there such a place? Was you just wanting it for the moment, sir? No, no, for as long as we're here. Couldn't say, I'm sure, sir. That's for the QM. Yes, I was only wondering. And when the man had gone, stupid fellow that. I always thought he was called Smethers. Guy turned back to his weekly papers. Apthorpe sat opposite him, gazing at his boots. Once he got up, walked to the cupboard, peered in, shut it and returned to his chair. I can keep it there, I suppose, but I can't possibly use it there, can I? Can't you? Well, how can I? There was a pause during which Guy read an article about the inviolability of the Michele marshes. These were the brave days before the fall of Finland. Then Apthorpe said, I thought I could find a place for it in the shrubbery, but it's all much more open than I realised. Guy said nothing and turned a page of the tablet. It was clear that Apthorpe was longing to divulge his secret and would shortly do so. It's no good going to the QM. He wouldn't understand. It's not exactly an easy thing to explain to anyone. Then, after another pause, he said, Well, if you must know, it's my thunderbox. This was far above Guy's hopes. His mind had been running on food, medicine, firearms. At the very best, he had hoped for something exotic in footwear. May I see it? he asked reverently. I don't see why not, said Apthorpe. As a matter of fact, I think it will interest you. It's pretty neat, a type they don't make any more. Too expensive, I suppose. He went to the cupboard and dragged out the treasure. A brass-bound oak cube. It's a beautiful piece of work, really. He opened it, showing a mechanism of heavy cast brass and patterned earthenware of solid Edwardian workmanship. On the inside of the lid was a plaque bearing the embossed title of Connolly's Chemical Closet. What do you think of it? said Apthorpe. Guy was not sure of the proper terms in which to praise such an exhibit. It's clearly been very well looked after, said Guy. It seemed he had said the right thing. I got it from a High Court judge the year they put drains into the government buildings at Karonga. Gave him five pounds for it. I doubt if you could find one for twenty today. There's not the craftsmanship any more. You must be very proud of it. I am. But I don't quite see why you need it here. Don't you, old man? Don't you? A curiously solemn and fatuous expression replaced the innocent light of ownership that had until now beamed from Apthorpe. Have you ever heard of a rather unpleasant complaint called clap? Crouch back. Guy was dumbfounded. I say, what a beastly thing. I am sorry. I had no idea. I suppose you picked it up the other night in London when you were tight. But are you having it properly seen to? Oughtn't you to go sick? No, 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 no. I haven't got it. Then who has? Sam Smith, for one. How do you know? I don't know. I simply chose Sam Smith as an example. He's just the sort of young idiot who would. Any of them might. I don't intend to take any risks. He shut his box and pushed it away under the stairs. The effort seemed to rile him. What's more, old man, he said, I don't much like the way you spoke to me just now, accusing me of having clap. It's a pretty serious thing, you know. I'm sorry, it was rather a natural mistake in the circumstances. Not natural to me, old man. And I don't quite know what you mean by circumstances. I never get tight. I should have thought you would have noticed that. Merry, perhaps, on occasions, but never tight. It's a thing I keep clear of. I've seen far too much of it. 
Apthorpe was up at first light next day exploring the outbuildings and before breakfast had discovered an empty shed where the school, perhaps, had kept bats and pads. There, with the help of Halberdier Croc, he installed his chemical closet and thither for several tranquil days he resorted for his comfort. It was two days after the fall of Finland that his troubles began. Back from biffing about the downs and, after a late lunch and inclined for half an hour's rest, Guy was disturbed by Apthorpe. He wore a face of doom. Crouchback, a word with you. Well, in private, if you don't mind. I do mind. What is it? Apthorpe looked round the anteroom. Everyone seemed occupied. You've been using my thunderbox. No, I haven't. Someone has. Well, it isn't me. No one else knows of it. How about Halberdier Croc? He wouldn't dare. Nor would I, my dear fellow. Is that your last word? Yes. Very well. But in future... I shall keep a lookout. Yes, I should. It's a serious matter, you know. It almost amounts to pilfering. The chemical is far from cheap. How much ago? It isn't the money, it's the principal. And the risk of infection. Exactly. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katie Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. For two days, Apthorpe posted himself in the bushes near his shed and spent every available minute on watch. On the third day, he drew Guy aside and said, Crouch back, I owe you an apology. It isn't you who's been using my thunderbox. I knew that. Yes, but you must admit the circumstances were very suspicious. Anyway, I found out who it is, and it's most disturbing. Not Sarah Smith? No. Much more disturbing than that. It's the Brigadier! Do you think he's got clap? No, most unlikely. Far too much a man of the world. But the question arises, what action ought I to take? None. 
It's a matter of principle. As my superior officer, he has no more right to use my thunderbox than to wear my boots. Well, I'd lend him my boots if he wanted them. Perhaps, but then, if you'll forgive my saying so, you're not very particular about your boots, are you, old man? Anyway, you think it my duty to submit without protest? I think you'll make a tremendous ass of yourself if you don't. I shall have to think about it. Do you think I ought to consult the BM? No, you may be right. Next day, Apthorpe reported, Things are looking worse. It showed how much the thunderbox had occupied Guy's thoughts that he at once knew what Apthorpe meant. More intruders? No, not that. But this morning, as I was coming out, I met the brigadier going in. He gave me a very odd look. You may have noticed he has a rather disagreeable stare on occasions. His look seemed to suggest that I had no business there. He's a man of action, said Guy. You won't have to wait long to know what he thinks about it. All day Apthorpe was distracted. He answered haphazardly when asked an opinion on tactics. His solutions of the problems set them were wild. It was a particularly cold day. At every pause in the routine he kept vigil by the hut. He missed tea and did not return until ten minutes before the evening lecture. He was red-nosed and blue-cheeked. You'll make yourself ill if this goes on, said Guy. It can't go on. The worst has happened already. What? Come and see. I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. They went out into the gloom. Just five minutes ago I'd been on watch since tea and was getting infernally cold, so I started walking about, and the brigadier came right past me. I saluted. He said nothing. Then he did this thing right under my very eyes. Then he came past me again and I saluted and he positively grinned. I tell you, Crouchback, it was devilish. They had reached the hut. Guy could just see something large and white hanging on the door. Apthorpe turned his torch on it and Guy saw a neatly inscribed notice. Out of bounds to all ranks, below Brigadier. He must have had it specially made by one of the clerks, said Apthorpe awfully. It's put you in rather a fix, hasn't it, said Guy. I shall send in my papers. I don't believe you can in wartime. I can ask for a transfer to another regiment. I should miss you, Apthorpe, more than you can possibly believe. Anyway, there's a lecture in two minutes. Let's go in. The brigadier himself lectured. Booby traps, it appeared, were proving an important feature of patrol work on the Western Front. The brigadier spoke of tripwires, detonators, anti-personnel mines. He described in detail an explosive goat, which he had once contrived and driven into a Bedouin encampment. Seldom had he been more exuberant. This was one of the evenings when there was no discussion or night exercise and it was generally accepted that those who wished might dine out. Let's go to the Garibaldi, said Apthorpe. I won't sit at the same table with that man. You must dine with me as my guest. There, in the steam of minestrone, Apthorpe's face became a healthier colour and strengthened by Barolo, his despair gave place to defiance. Pelecci leant very near while Apthorpe rehearsed his wrongs. The conversation was abstruse. Thunderbox, an invention of this capable officer's, unjustly misappropriated by a superior, was clearly a new weapon of value. I don't think, said Apthorpe, it would be any good appealing to the Army Council, do you? No. You could not expect them to meet a case like this with purely open minds. I don't suggest positive prejudice, but, after all, it's in their interest to support authority if they possibly can. If they found a loophole. You think there are loopholes in your case? Quite frankly, old man, I do. In a court of honour, of course, the thing would be different. But in its purely legal aspect, one has to admit that the brigadier is within his rights in putting any part of the brigade premises out of bounds. It is also true that I installed my thunderbox without permission. That's just the sort of point the army council would jump on. Of course, said Guy, it's arguable that since the thunderbox has not risen to the rank of brigadier, it is itself, at the moment, out of bounds. You've got it, Crouchback. You've hit the nail right on the head. 
He goggled across the table with frank admiration. There's such a thing, you know, as being too near to a problem. Here, I've been telling this thing over and over in my mind till I felt quite ill with worry. I knew I needed an outside opinion. Anybody's just someone who wasn't personally implicated. I've no doubt I'd have come to the same solution myself sooner or later, but I might have worried half the night. I owe you a real debt of gratitude, old man. More food arrived and more wine. Giuseppe Palacci was out of his depth. Thunderbox, it now appeared, was the code name of some politician of importance, but no military rank, held concealed in the district. He would pass the information on, for what it was worth. Keener brains than his should make what they could of it. He had no ambition to rise in his profession. He was doing nicely out of the restaurant. He had worked up the goodwill of the place himself. Politics bored him and battles frightened him. It was only in order to escape military service that he had come here in the first place. And afterwards, a special Zabaglione, gentlemen. Yes, said Apthorpe. Yes, rather. Let's have all you've got. And to Guy, you must understand that this is my dinner. So Guy had understood from the first. This reminder, Guy thought, was perhaps a clumsy expression of gratitude. It was, in fact, a sly appeal for further services. I think we've cleared up the whole legal aspect very neatly, Apthorpe continued. But there's now the question of action. How are we going to get the thunderbox out? The way you got it in, I suppose. Not so easy, old man. There's wheels within wheels. Halberdier Croc and I carried it there. How can we carry it away without going out of bounds? One can't order a man to perform an unlawful action. You must remember that. Besides, I shouldn't really care to ask him. He was distinctly uncooperative about the whole undertaking. Couldn't you lasso it from the door? Pretty ticklish, old man. Besides, my lariat is with the rest of my gear at the Commodore's. Couldn't you draw it out with a magnet? I say, are you trying to be funny, Crouchback? It's just a suggestion. Not a very practical one, if you don't mind my saying so. No, someone must go in and get it. Out of bounds. Someone who doesn't know, or at least who the brigadier doesn't know knows, that the hut is out of bounds. If he was caught, he could always plead that he didn't see the notice in the dark. You mean me? Well, you're more or less the obvious person, aren't you, old man? All right, said Guy, I don't mind. Good for you, said Apthorpe, greatly relieved. They finished their dinner. Apthorpe grumbled about the bill, but he paid it. They returned to Kut Alimara. There was no one about. Apthorpe kept Carve, and Guy, without much difficulty, dragged the object into the open. Where to now? That's the question. Where do you think will be the best place? The latrines? Really, old man, this is scarcely the time or place for humour. I was only thinking of Chesterton's observation, where is the best place to hide a leaf in a tree? I don't get you, old man. It would be jolly awkward up a tree from every point of view. Well, let's not take it far. It's bloody heavy. There's a potting shed I found when I was making my recce. They took it there, fifty yards away. It was less commodious than the hut, but Apthorpe said it would do. As they were returning from their adventure, he paused in the path and said with unusual warmth, I shan't forget this evening's work, Crouchback. Thank you very much. And thank you for dinner. That wop did pile it on, didn't he? After a few more steps, Apthorpe said, Look here, old man, if you care to use the thunderbox too, it's all right with me. It was a moment of heightened emotion, an historic moment, had Guy recognised it, when in their complicated relationship Apthorpe came nearest to love and trust. It passed, as such moments do between Englishmen. I, it's very good of you, but I'm quite content as I am. Sure? Yes. That's all right, then, said Apthorpe, greatly relieved. Thus Guy stood high in Apthorpe's favour and became with him joint custodian of the Thunderbox. 3. In full retrospect, all the last weeks of March resolved themselves into the saga of the chemical closet. Apthorpe soon forgot his original motive for installing it. 
He was no longer driven by fear of infection. His right of property was at stake. Waiting to fall in on the morning after the first translation, Apthorpe drew Guy aside. Their new comradeship was on a different plane from frank geniality. They were fellow conspirators now. It's still there. Good. Untouched. Fine. I think, old man, that in the circumstances, we had better not be seen talking together too much. Later, as they went into the mess for luncheon, Guy had the odd impression that someone in the crowd was attempting to hold his hand. He looked about him and saw Apthorpe near, with averted face, talking with great emphasis to Captain Sanders. Then he realised that a note was being passed to him. Apthorpe made for a place at table as far as possible from his. Guy opened the screw of paper and read, The notice has been taken down from the hut. Unconditional surrender? Not until tea time did Apthorpe consider it safe to speak. I don't think we've any more to worry about. The brig has given us best. Doesn't sound like him. Oh, he's unscrupulous enough for anything. I know that. But he has his dignity to consider. Guy did not wish to upset Apthorpe's new gleeful mood, but he doubted whether these adversaries had an identical sense of dignity. Next day it was apparent that they had not. Apthorpe arrived for parade. Under the new regime there was half an hour's drill and physical training every morning, with a face of horror. He fell in next to Guy. Again, there was an odd interfumbling of fingers and Guy found himself holding a message. He read it at the first stand easy, while Apthorpe turned ostentatiously away. Must speak to you alone, first opportunity, gravest developments. An opportunity came halfway through the morning. The man's mad, a dangerous certifiable maniac. I don't know what I ought to do about it. What's he done now? He came within an inch of killing me, that's all. If I hadn't been wearing my steel helmet, I shouldn't be here to tell you. He caught me with a bloody great flower pot, full of earth, and a dead geranium, square on the top of my head. That's what he did this morning. He threw it at you. It was on top of the potting shed door. Why were you wearing your tin hat? Instinct, old man. Self-preservation. But you said last night you thought the whole thing was over. Apthorpe, do you always wear your tin hat on the Thunderbox? All this is irrelevant. The point is that this man simply isn't responsible. It's a very serious matter for someone in his position. And ours. A time may come when he holds our lives in his hands. What ought I to do? Move the box again. And not report the matter? Well, there's your dignity to consider. You mean there are people who might think it funny? Awfully funny. Damn, said Apthorpe. I hadn't considered that side of the question. I wish you'd tell me the truth about the tin hat. Well, if you must know, I have been wearing it lately. I suppose it really boils down to homesickness, old man. The helmet has rather the feel of a solar toupee, if you see what I mean. It makes the thunderbox more homely. You don't start out wearing it. No, under my arm. And when you do put it on, before or after lowering the costume... I must know, on the threshold as it happens, very luckily for me this morning. But you know, really, old man, I, I don't quite get you. Why all the interest? I must visualise the scene, Apthorpe. When we are old men, memories of things like this will be our chief comfort. Crouchback, there are times when you talk almost as though you found it funny. Please don't think that, Apthorpe. I beg you, think anything but that. Already, after so brief a reconciliation, Apthorpe was getting suspicious. He would have liked to be huffy, but did not dare. He was pitted against a ruthless and resourceful enemy, and must hold fast to Guy, or go down. Well, what is our next move? he asked. That night they crept out to the potting shed, and Apthorpe in silence showed with his torch the broken shards, the scattered mould, and the dead geranium of that morning's great fright. In silence he and Guy lifted the box, and bore it as they had planned, back to its original home in the games hut. 
Next day, the brigadier appeared at first parade. ATM 24, as no doubt you all know, recommends the use of games for training and observation and fieldcraft. This morning, gentlemen, you will play such a game. Somewhere about these grounds has been concealed an antiquated field latrine, no doubt left here as valueless by the former occupants of the camp. It looks like a plain square box. Work singly. The first officer to find it will report to me. Fall out. His effrontery staggers me, said Apthorpe. Crouch back, guard the shed. I will draw off the hunt. New strength had come to Apthorpe. He was master of the moment. He strode off purposefully towards the area of coal bunkers and petrol dump, and, sure enough, the brigadier was soon seen to follow behind him. Guy made deviously for the games hut and sauntered near it. Twice other seekers approached, and Guy said, I've just looked in there, nothing to see. Presently the bugle recalled them. The brigadier received the nil report, mounted his motorcycle and drove away scowling ominously, but without a word. He did not reappear at all that day. A bad loser, old man, said Apthorpe. But next day, the out-of-bounds notice was back on the shed. As Guy foresaw... Those mad march days and nights of hide-and-seek drained into a deep well of refreshment in his mind, but in retrospect the detail of alternate ruse and counter-ruse faded and grew legendary. He never again smelled wet laurel or trod among pine needles without reliving those encumbered night prowls with Apthorpe, those mornings of triumph or disappointment. But the precise succession of episodes, indeed their very number, faded and were lost among later, less childlike memories. The climax came in Holy Week at the very end of the course, the brigadier had been in London for three days, on the business of their next move. The thunderbox stood in a corner of the playing field, unhoused but well hidden between an elm tree and a huge roller. There for three days, Apthorpe enjoyed undisputed rights of property. The brigadier returned in alarmingly high spirits. He had bought some trick glasses at a toy shop, which, when raised, spilled their contents down the drinker's chin, and these he secretly distributed round the table before dinner. After dinner, there was a long session of housey-housey. When he had called the last house, he said, Gentlemen, everyone except the BM and I goes on leave tomorrow. We meet under canvas in the lowlands of Scotland, where you'll have ample space to put into practice the lessons you have learned here. Details of the move will be posted as soon as the BM has sweated them out. You will particularly notice that officers' baggage and equipment is defined by a scale laid down at the warehouse. Those limits will be strictly observed. I think that's all, isn't it, BM? Oh, no, one other thing. You're all improperly dressed. You've been promoted as from this morning. Get those second pips up before leaving camp. That night there was singing in the dormitories. This time tomorrow I shall be far from this academy. Leonard improvised. No more tutes and no more drill. No night ops to cause a chill. I say, said Guy to Apthorpe, that scale of equipment won't allow for your gear. I know, old man, it's very worrying. And the thunderbox? I shall find a place for it, somewhere quite safe, a crypt, a vault, somewhere like that, where I shall know it's waiting for me until the end of the war. No more swamps through which to creep, no more lectures to make me sleep. The cheerful voices reached the room, marked Brigade HQ, where the brigadier was at work with his brigade manger. That reminds me, he said, I've some unfinished business to attend to outside. Next morning, as soon as the sun touched the unshaded window of Passchendaele, Apthorpe was up, jabbing his shoulder straps with a pair of nail scissors. Then he tricked himself out as a lieutenant. He nothing common did or mean on their morning of departure. His last act before leaving the dormitory was a friendly one. He offered to lend Guy a pair of stars from a neat leather stud box, which he now revealed to be full of such adornments and of crowns too. Then before Guy had finished shaving, Hapthorpe correctly dressed 
and bearing his steel helmet under his arm, set out for his corner of the playing field. The spot was not a furlong away. In less than five minutes, an explosion rattled the windows of the schoolmaster. Various jolly end-of-term voices rose from the dormitories. Air raid! Take cover! Gas! Guy buckled his belt and hurried out to what he knew must be the scene of the disaster. Wisps of smoke were visible. He crossed the playing field. At first there was no sign of Apthorpe. Then he came upon him, standing, leaning against the elm, wearing his steel helmet, fumbling with his trouser buttons and gazing with dazed horror on the wreckage which lay all around the roller. "'I say, are you hurt? Who is that? Crouch back? I, I don't know. I simply don't know, old man.' Of the thunderbox there remained only a heap of smoking wood, brass valves, pinkish chemical powder scattered many yards, and great jags of patterned china. "'What happened?' I don't know, old man. I just sat down. There was a frightful bang, and the next thing I knew, I was on all fours on the grass, right over there. Are you hurt? Guy asked again. Shock, said Apthorpe. I don't feel at all the thing. Guy looked more closely at the wreckage. It was plain enough from his memories of the last lecture what had happened. Apthorpe removed his steel helmet, recovered his cap, straightened his uniform, put up a hand to assure himself that his new stars were still in place. He looked once more on all that remained of his thunderbox. The mot juste, thought Guy. He seemed too dazed for grief. Guy was at a loss for words of condolence. Better come back to breakfast. They turned silently towards the house. Apthorpe walked unsteadily across the wet patchy field, with his eyes fixed before him. On the steps he paused once and looked back. There was more of high tragedy than of bitterness in the epitaph he spoke. Biffed, 